Well, 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 look who it is. Look who it is. It's old nosy ears listening in on me again into my private... Cro- Wait, no, this isn't private. This this is for you. This this is the Harlan Highway podcast. What am I talking about? Sorry about that. Uh, welcome to the podcast, the Harlan Highway podcast. I am Harland Williams, your host. Hi, would you like some crackers? Uh, what a show we have today. It's so exciting. Well, it's mixed. You know, Muhammad Ali recently passed away, and everyone's been scrambling for interviews uh, with people from his past, and we were able to locate uh, Troy Peterson, Muhammad Ali's very first boxing coach. He's still alive, and uh, he is going to recount those early years when Muhammad Ali first stepped into a gym. This is going to be unbelievable. So uh, stay tuned for that. Also, um, I'm going to be uh, talking about nature and wolves and the ecosystem and how we all fit in together, how we all blend together and how everything's a miracle and a gift of life. And, oh, it's going to be so fun. And then also we're having one of my pissed off segments. Yes, there's something that I'm very pissed off about, and I go on a rant. I go on a rant just to vent and get it out of my system. Maybe you'll be pissed off at the same thing. But for now, we're going to be happy because it's starting. This is the Harland Highway. Where am I? What is this? Some kind of a joke or something? Welcome to the Harland Highway. What you talking about, Willis? Son, you got a panty on your head. Shut up and sit down, you big bald fuck. Oh, God, what's happening here? Hey, Harland, it's Shelly. You just made a wrong turn onto the Harland Highway. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That is fantastic. What's wrong with everybody in this crazy place? The Harland Highway. What is it? The opening. To what? To another dimension. This is Harland Williams. You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. That is fantastic. Yeah, that's the lonely cry of the wolf. Um, I don't know if you guys are nature freaks or fanatics. Do you like your nature? Um, I think we all like nature on some level. I mean, you, you always get the the odd person that's, you know, just a a city bumpkin. You know, every now and then you'll meet someone. You ever been camping, man? You ever been canoeing? Oh, God, no. I would never go. Are you kidding? Is there a subway in the forest? Then no. I mean, is there a Starbucks when you're canoeing? Hell no. Are you crazy in the forest? where Aren't there leaves there and stuff? So sometimes you get those people, but... um. I came across a very interesting uh, little snippet that uh, I think this thing's about two minutes long, and uh, I'd like to play it for you guys because it, it, it you know, I, I, I heard this and I, and, and I was reminded, as we all should be, how intricate the balance is in nature and how, how sometimes we separate ourselves from nature and... Think of nature as animals and snow and mountains, but we're the human beings. We're over here. You know, nature's cool, but, you know, it's like going to the mall. If I want nature, I'll go to nature. But you're in nature. Even though you live in a city or a town, you know, nature is all around. 
and we're kind of occupying nature's space for now. Someday I'm pretty sure nature will reclaim all of it. But for now, we can pretend that, you know, we're the top dogs and we're running the show and, you know, we, we control nature. Uh-uh. Uh, but this was a, there's a very interesting piece that not only made me think about how everything's connected, but uh, it also made me kind of think about how, how intricate and how everything, everything uh, is put together, almost like a puzzle, how one, one piece of the puzzle affects the other piece of the puzzle. And, and it does really make you think in broader terms, beyond the scope of nature, uh, hearing this piece made me think about God. It made me think about, wow, it, it, everything just fits so well. Could it be just a random uh, biology and evolution that, that created this, this, this balance, this dance? The, all the moving pieces that seem to fit together to make the, the planet and all the living organisms work? I don't know, man. And that's what I like about this piece. It, it talks about, uh, you know, not just the world around us, but it makes you kind of question and think in broader terms of how everything living fits together. So have a listen and, uh, and see, uh, see if you get anything out of this piece that uh, I enjoyed. Here it is. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes. And as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, 
more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. But here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Excuse me, excuse me. Uh, whew. You know, nothing like a good wolf howl. They should have studio. You know the way they have yoga studios and Pilates studios? A good wolf howl just, it releases something from the soul. It taps into the, the, the base of your stomach and up through your esophagus and out your throat. And it's a, what a beautiful release. Arrgh! Um, if you don't choke to death, but, uh, so I don't know if you guys enjoyed that, that little clip, but I, I found it uh, quite fascinating and, you know, did, did, did the, did the wolves really change the environment? Well, to a degree they did, but at the end of the day, it was really the vegetation that changed the environment. Um, because obviously with the trees growing up, um, they secure the uh, the banks of the rivers. They secure the soil. They uh, they inhibit the erosion that can uh, you know take uh, take nutrients away from the land and and uh, erode the uh, the river banks and blah blah blah. But the 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 wolves were the catalyst for this, as you heard. And uh, it's just fascinating the way how one species can have such an effect on the whole chain. And uh, this is stuff that, that these are uh, nature's lessons that can never be forgotten and often are. And, uh, you know, as we lose more and more species every year, it uh, it's scary and it's sad to, sad to hear and sad to see. And, and so this was, uh, I thought, a very uh, cool reminder and insight into into that world. And, and, you know, on the note, on the positive note of human beings, uh, you know, um, kind of destroying nature, which, which we do, um, 
I know for a fact that a lot of the lumber companies that do go in and, and you know, strip out many, many forests and, and trees uh, in nature, they at least understand this process of, of how delicate riverbanks are. And that with, with uh, riverbanks that don't have any support, there can be widespread devastation and it can affect wildlife. It can affect the whole geography of a, of a region. And so um, because I worked in the lumber industry back in the day, I learned that uh, lum- lumber companies are uh, required by, uh, by the government when they do uh, harvest a, a location they, by law, have to leave uh, a certain uh, amount of, of uh, foliage and, and lumber and trees on the riverbanks. So the lumber companies are not allowed to harvest all the way down to the river's edge. They must leave a, uh, you know, I think it's a 20-foot or 25-foot uh, parameter on each side of the riverbed to prevent just such destruction of the environment. So so that's good, even though you may oppose the lumber industry. It's something that us humans uh, rely on. We need it to build our homes and things and to live. But at least there's a conscientious effort to, uh, you know, take but not destroy. And uh, in many cases, at least where I used to work, uh, lumber companies uh, were forced to... Um, to pay for uh, tree planting so that after they harvested a large area, they had to go back in and plant trees and rejuvenate the, the area that they had cut. So anyways, the, the, you got to love the wolves and how they changed the behavior of the other animals that moved the, the grazers away and uh, led the way to uh, the rejuvenation of the plant life and, as you heard, down the line. And uh, just cool stuff. I thought you might like that. And uh, always respect nature, always love nature, and uh, never forget that's where we all came from. Don't piss me off. This is Harlan Williams. And you're really pissing me off. Oh, you're starting to piss me off, you little pigless son of a bitch. You pissed me off. Shut up! You're pissing me off! These fucking assholes! This fuck! These fucking assholes! The fuck is their problem, man? Oh, yes. As you can guess, another episode of What's Pissing Off Harland. Here's what it is, man. I don't know if you guys watch the news at all. I know I do. And I enjoy watching the news. I like the variety. I like I like the different stories. I like that they jump around from politics to world matters to quirky little fun stories to social happenings to, you know, the news. And I like to hop around. I'll go to CNN. I'll go to Fox. I'll go to MSNBC. I like to get my news from all variations of outlets. And as we know, news is happening 24-7. And things are constantly changing and happening and erupting. And, you know, so, so you want to watch the news to be stimulated by things that are happening on our planet. And this is going to sound weird. 
But now I'm almost afraid, and this is where I get pissed off, I'm almost afraid of news happening. And you're like, what does that mean, Harlan? You just said you like the news, and now you're telling us you're afraid of the news happening? I don't understand. Well, here's what it is, gang. Now, sometimes when news happens, these idiotic news stations are more interested in ratings than they are about continuing to deliver the news. And so if a story breaks of what they feel is of greater significance than other stories, they will cover that freaking news story like 24-7, sometimes for two, three days. Case in point, recently, okay, there was another plane uh, crash in Egypt. This was about, I don't know, three weeks, a month ago, probably a month ago now. And an Egypt airline, God rest everybody's soul, I think there were 60 or 70 people on board. This plane uh, crashed over the Mediterranean and uh, was gone. And so the minute it happened, CNN and Fox and all of them, they got on the news And I'm not kidding, for three days, two and a half at least, nonstop, and this is in the middle of a heated, you know, presidential political race in the United States, the news stations decide to follow this plane crash, and they did this with the Malaysian plane crash too. Um, And and for, for three freaking days, it was talking head after talking head, talking about the plane. Well, where do you think it's gone? What does it mean that it took a left turn before it went off radar? Where's the black box? What did what did what do you think, aeronautics expert? Oh, that's what you think? Okay. Well, let's ask 12 more people just like you. And by the way, none of you know what happened, so everything you're saying, you're just making up and guessing. And after, you know, 20 minutes of you telling us how airplanes work, and what little black boxes do, and all the shit we already know, why don't you continue to to talk to these people over and over and over and ask the same questions for three days? And God bless Muhammad Ali. We all love Muhammad Ali. But the minute that guy died, I went, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. And sure enough, 24 hours. You know, so-and-so, oh, Muhammad Ali was the greatest. Oh, what a wonder. Can I tell you another story about Muhammad Ali? Let's show some footage of Muhammad Ali. Here's Muhammad Ali talking, and here's a clip of him fighting. And great. We all love Muhammad Ali. But, but, you know, tell the story in five minutes and move on. And then maybe the next hour, tell the story again for five minutes. And so, you know, every hour, dedicate five minutes instead of dedicating the whole hour for two days about Muhammad Ali. It's just so so when I say now I'm afraid for news to happen, it it drives me nuts. If, If someone famous dies now, if a plane crashes, if there's a terrorist event or a shooting at a high school or a sniper... It's like, okay, I might as well turn off the news because these assholes are going to talk about the same thing over and over for three days. 
Everything else going on in the world just comes to a stop. And these guys are going to sit here and repeat themselves over and over and over and over and interview the same person with a different voice over and over. Do you hear how pissed off I am? So can you just stop it? You know, in the old days before cable news, okay, you had the evening news. It came on NBC, ABC, and CBS. It was Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, and these three guys came on every night, and they had a half hour to tell the news. And if Muhammad Ali died or a plane crashed or there was a terror, they gave each story about two, three, maybe four minutes if it was huge, and then they had to move on and finish the rest of the stories from all over the world. And nobody was the lesser. Nobody, you know, it, it was like, we got it. And so where I'm really pissed off, as you can hear, is, you know, having to suffer through this stuff. And we never like tragedy. We don't like bad news, but we get it. We also don't like to be beat into the ground with it, man. So while the networks think they're getting all these viewers and people watching, I just tune the hell out. So there you go. That's what I'm pissed off about today. And, uh, Arg, arg, I'm mad, arg. I hope no news happens anymore so I don't have to watch it, even though I want to watch it. Huh? It's 22 years later, and Norman Bates is coming home. I own a motel not too far from here, and you'd be welcome to spend the night in one of the empty rooms if you'd like. Well, we were talking, uh, you know, about the news cycle and, and, you know, me getting pissed off about the news. And obviously, as we all know, Muhammad Ali just recently passed away and we, we thought it would, uh, it would be a disservice to not, uh, you know, dedicate part of the show to him and his legacy and his life, his boxing career. And, uh, so Roger did some research and, uh, we found, uh, we dug up one of, uh, Muhammad Ali's earliest coaches, who, uh, who worked with uh, Muhammad from uh, a very young age, when he was 19, uh, right up uh, until uh, the end of his uh, boxing career, professional boxing career. Uh, he was a coach, a mentor, an advisor to Muhammad, and uh, I think we have him on the line, Roger. Troy Peterson? Yeah, put him through. Here we go. Uh this should be very uh, insightful and interesting. Uh, hello, Mr. Peterson. Are you there, sir? Hey, hello. Yes, sir. Uh, welcome to the Harland Highway, Mr. Peterson. Uh, thank you, Mr. Williams. It's just an honor and a pleasure to be on such a wonderful uh, broadcast uh, such as yours. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Peterson. Where, where, where are you calling from today? Uh, I'm out of uh, Detroit, uh, Detroit, Michigan, and... Uh, this is uh, where I first uh, met Muhammad. Uh, this is where I trained Muhammad. And uh, uh, yes, sir. Okay, great city. And uh, and so you started early on with uh, with Muhammad Ali. You were his first coach. Uh, that that is correct, sir. I I, I taught uh, Mr. Ali. Uh, Muhammad Ali came into my uh, boxing facility, my club. Uh, uh, we got we got a, a gym and a boxing club uh, downtown, 
And I'll never forget the day uh, he walked in. He was just a skinny, <laughs> a skinny little fella. <laughs> and, you know, he had that big, bright, wide smile. Uh, but the day he walked in, Mr. Williams, he just, <laughs> I can still, he just stared at, at, at the, the, the man in the ring who was sparring at the time. <laughs> uh, he was mesmerized at the word that I could use. It was almost like I saw a light bulb go off in that boy's eyes. And it was almost without me even having to talk to him, he knew, he knew the moment he laid eyes on those men in the ring that he was born to be a puncher. <laughs> it was quite a sight, Mr. Williams. Well, I can only imagine. Wow, I'd like, I wish there someone had a picture of that. <laughs> you and me both. I, I wish I had taken a picture of that, that very moment, sir. Now, um... So you took him under under uh, your wing, and uh, and you t- you uh, taught him to box. You taught him to train. Absolutely, Mr. Williams. And I have to say, what, what a wonderful student he was. I mean, he he took the boxing like a like a, a bear to honey. Just just a natural. Yeah, yeah, it it shows. I mean, this guy, he was a natural, right? Oh, absolutely. Even the, even the older boxers in the gym, they, they stopped to watch Muhammad train. They, they, they couldn't believe the, the finesse that this young this young talent had. Wow. And and what were your techniques? What what kind of training did you um introduce into Muhammad's life to uh you know, help, uh, you know, complement his skills, his boxing skills. Well, I, I took a very uh, untraditional approach with uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, Mr. Williams, I got a little bit of pneumonia. I'm not as young as I used to be now. I understand, sir. That's okay. Uh, and so uh, Muhammad, I could tell, was not going to be a traditional fighter. And Muhammad, as you know, had a very kind, giving heart. He liked to do uh, charity work in the community. Well, yeah, that that is true. He had a very, very big heart. <laughs> are you are you okay, sir? Uh, yeah, thank you for asking, Mr. Williams. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. Y- yes, sir. Uh, but, uh, you know, to, in order to train uh, Muhammad, I knew it was going to take a special technique that also played into, uh, you know, Muhammad's uh, generous nature and wanting to give back to the community. Okay, that, that makes sense, absolutely. And do you remember in the uh, movie Sylvester Stallone did back in the 70s called Rocky? Oh, yeah, everyone knows Rocky. Well, there, there was a scene in that movie where it showed Rocky training, okay? Do you remember him training, Mr. Williams? He, he went to the meat locker, down to the meat packing plant, and Rocky would train by punching the sides of meat hanging down from the ceiling in the, in the uh, meat freezer. Do you remember this, Mr. Williams? Oh, that unforgettable. I mean, he would go in, he was wearing his sweats, he had his little hat, and he was all bundled up, and it was such a graphic scene. He'd go in and he just literally started pummeling the sides of beef hanging from meat hooks from the ceiling and slap, slap, slap. 
<laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, uh, if you were to ask uh, Sly Stallone about his inspiration for that scene, uh, that came directly from the training I did with Mohammed. Oh, really? Yes. How did, Tell us. Well, Mohammed was uh, always, like I said, Mr. Williams, wanted to do community uh Excuse me, wanted to do community, uh, you know, correspondence and give back to the community while he was training. And so I was able to facilitate uh, in the greater Michigan area. Uh, I was able to come up with a list of all the seniors' homes uh, across the great state of Michigan. The se- you, uh, you came across a list of the senior homes, sir? Absolutely, and so I was able to take Muhammad around to all these seniors' homes. Isn't that nice visiting the uh, the elderly and and uh, inspiring them? And well, d- 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 don't get ahead of the the the, the, the card here, Mister <laughs> William. Now, uh, I took Muhammad uh, 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 to the to the seniors' homes uh, to train. Oh, he was training at the senior homes. Well, that's nice too. I mean, you, I'm guessing you put him down in the in the community center or the the cafeteria, and he would hop around and and keep the uh, the elderly folks entertained. Well, well again, you 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 get it. Uh, you're putting the horse ahead of the car, Mister William. Now, now Muhammad believed that people should go out when they wanted to go out. Now, you, you know, almost an early form. Of assisted suicide, but um, I, w- wait a minute. What does that mean? Well, as, as his way of giving back, Muhammad would find the weak and the elderly and the the, the crippled and the people that you know were, were confined to a wheelchair and that look in their eye. And, you know, they they lived long enough and didn't want to carry on anymore. Oh, and so Muhammad was there in their final moments. Well, well, so to speak, Mr. Williams, what we did is Muhammad Ali was such a lethal uh, puncher. He was such an accurate puncher, you know, the rope-a-dope. The, he just flew in, and uh, his punches resonated with so much power and so much accuracy. Oh, yeah, I have no doubt about that. And so we would find the elderly people that didn't want to go on anymore with life, that kind of come to the end of the line, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Well, that is sad, yes. And so we would arrange that uh, the, the, the seniors' homes would, would line these uh, people up. Usually there were seven or eight per seniors' home. And and, and about you and Muhammad Ali would put on a, a show for them, kind of like a dying wish. Well, if you, now, if you let me finish, Muhammad Ali, what he would do is he would... He would, in essence, uh, 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 put these people out of their misery. How do you mean by that, uh, uh, Mr. Peterson? Well, Muhammad Ali, as part of his training, and similar to Rocky when when he punched that raw beef hanging from the the, the meat locker ceiling, uh, Muhammad Ali would do these elderly people a favor and punch them in the side of the head uh, you know, until they were they they, they had expired. Uh, w- wait, what? Well, you know, he needed to train, Mister Williams, and so uh, he would use uh, the, the elderly people, just you know, punch them in the temple or 
him, you know, punch him repeatedly in the head. He wore the boxing gloves, of course. I mean, he did it humanely. Wait a minute. Hold on, sir. You're saying to me that, that Muhammad Ali trained, practiced his punching skills by punching elderly people in seniors' homes? Well, not, not Mr. William, not just uh, punching them, but by us helping them in the final moments of their life, and you know, helping them and, and to step into the to the other side and meet the maker, so to speak. I mean, I mean, almost like a living angel. Uh. Wait a minute! Whoa! Yeah, yeah, hold on! You're telling me Muhammad Ali to train? Would oh, he would just dance in and around those wheelchairs, and you know, you, you people ask how did how did Muhammad Ali uh, develop his incredible footwork? And well, if you're dancing through a bunch of wheelchairs rolling around, a bunch of old people rolling around on the floor, and you're trying <laughs> you're trying not to get your toes run over, you're you're gonna dance. And you're gonna be moving backwards and forwards, and, and you're throwing punches. You hit a, a, you know, an old lady in the jaw, then you you back up and you you smack an old man in the temple and whatnot. Hold on. You're telling me that Muhammad Ali trained to be the champion boxer that he did by by punching old people to death. Well, well, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Williams, I, I hear the emotion in your voice, but, you know, everybody have their starting point. And, and I, I'll tell you what, Muhammad Ali could not have been more happy to see these people, uh, uh, you know, at the end of their lives, uh, move on to a better place. And, and uh, you know, with the big heart Muhammad had, if he could help, uh, facilitate that transition. He was uh, more than happy to do it, and at the same time, work on his boxing. Sir, this, the, I don't know if many people knew about this. I mean, for, for for a champion boxer to get his start and train uh, by weaving and bobbing through the, the countless bodies of seniors who are right one foot in the grave and. Are you saying he punched them in the head? Uh, right, right in the head, and you, you know, with a, with a <laughs> with a punch like Muhammad Ali. I mean, they, they did. Let's put it this way, Mister. They did not suffer long. Uh, once uh, Muhammad Ali wailed up outside your, you know, 80, 90 old uh, skull. Uh, you know, it, it, it ain't gonna take much to collapse it and turn turn your brain into, uh, you know, pudding. Whoa, 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 this is, this is ridiculous, sir. This is unacceptable. Well, now, Mr. Williams, if, if Rocky Balboa can, can punch meat, he can punch a dead cow, I, I sure think uh, the humane thing for Muhammad Ali to do is, uh, you know, help, help elderly people pass on to the next life. Well, well that was a movie, sir. That Rocky Balboa was a movie. It wasn't real life. No one really went in and punched punched raw beef hanging from the roof. And you're telling me that Muhammad Ali, the greatest fighter on earth, learned how to fight by going to seniors' homes and punching the living shit out of old people? 
I don't care if he was a 50-time. You don't you don't cut your teeth and train boxing by punching the life out of uh, innocent, helpless old people. Well, now, Mr. Williams, let, let's be realistic here. I mean, these people uh, didn't have much time left. And, and the way Muhammad thought is they might as well be, uh, you know, do something useful uh, before the... Now, now, don't say that, sir. Useful. I had, this is a shocking revelation here. <laughs> and I got to tell you, Mr. Williams, uh, sometimes we, we would uh, do it on their birthday. I'll never forget there was one uh, woman, uh, Annie Watkins, and she, <laughs> she was originally from Alabama, 111 years old, and I'll never forget the look on her face when Muhammad Ali himself, God bless his soul, brought her out a, a, a birthday cake, a big white birthday cake covered with candles. And as soon as she, she blew that last candle out, uh, you know, Muhammad came up with an uppercut, Mr. Williams, that knocked her fake teeth right through a soft, uh, you know, century-old skull. And uh, she flew right out the back of that wheelchair and hit the floor like a sack of, you know, fucking uh, fat fucking catfish, Mr. Williams. All right, sir. This is this is very very startling, and I don't know that we maybe this ever should have been brought up. <laughs> I'll never forget there was a pair of twins. They're two old twins. I think they're in their late nineties. And Muhammad Ali gave one of them a right hook and one of them a left hook simultaneously, and the heads conked together, causing a major contusion and a <laughs> a skull fracture, Mr. Williams. And these two old bastards, why well, I swear they died faster than a raccoon running across a twelve-lane turnpike. <laughs> Sir, this is really not appropriate. And one more thing, Mr. Williams. Have you ever seen a woman in a wheelchair get pummeled in the back of the head and the wheelchair fly down the hallway and get jammed in the elevator door? <laughs> and Muhammad... Sir, hang up on him, Roger. This is unbelievable. Hang up. I'll never forget the time he punched the eye socket out of... Get a hang up! What the fuck? Gee, God, that is just crazy. Troy Peter, his first, where do you find these people, Roger? <sighs> Good Lord. I think I'm going to wrap this show up. I just, the, the visuals of Muhammad Ali dancing in and around uh, wheelchairs, old people with the glazed look in their eyes drooling, and he's hammering them in the face, and good night, Nelly Furtado. Um, anyhow, let's, let's close it up. This is really weird. Um, hey, just in case you're wondering, for those of you revving up for the fall, I know we got a ways to go, but my uh, updated stand-up comedy tour special uh, schedule is now posted. All my uh, my gigs, my shows coming up in cities across the country 
are uh, at least the current ones are uh, up and available for you to look at at harlemwilliams.com. It looks like uh, some great cities, Salt Lake City, Denver, San Jose, uh, San Diego, um, Irvine. I mean, all over the place, man. Pittsburgh, Kansas. It's going to be a blast. So uh, check it out and see if I'm coming to your town and city. And uh, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, Oxnard, California, new club in there, all kinds of good stuff. So uh, check it out. Uh, while you're there, check out our uh, our online store at harlowilliams.com. And, uh, you know, check the whole site out, snoop around. we got a great store with digital downloads, T-shirts, CDs, music, artwork, Books, movies, it's all its all there. It's all delicious. Hope you find something that brings you some enjoyment. Um, also, you can uh, write to me there. There's a contact link on the page. So if you want to write me an email and leave a comment or a question, or you can phone me at 323-739-4330. That's 323-739-4330. Uh, leave me a message, and uh, I might play your message on the show. Love hearing from you guys, the Paven Pounders. Oh, hell yeah, I do. And uh, look forward to your feedback, your comment, your abuse, whatever you want. Um, and uh, I think that's it. I think that's all we got uh, We got cooking today. Uh, don't forget to uh, sign up for our premium membership, $20 for one whole year, gang. And that gets you my other podcast called Let's Have a Fight. Great podcast. Uh, also, it gets you uh, uh, recordings from my, uh, my appearances at stand-up comedy clubs. I uh, record my shows, and you get uh, snippets of new material, interactions with the crowd, uh, spur-of-the-moment improv, uh, people are loving it, and I want you to love it too. So $20 a year gets you that, plus the whole archived library of the show, which is almost 800 episodes. It's a great deal for 20 bucks. Uh, so you can uh, do that. You just go to your app store on your phone, type in the Harlan Highway, or just go to uh, the website, harlanwilliams.com, and uh, click on the... Uh, the podcast uh, link, and off you go. Off you go to the races or the app link, either one, and uh, get yourself signed up now. So there you go. Thanks for uh, joining in today. Hope you had a great time, everybody. Uh, love having you here. Tell your friends, and until next time, chicken, chow, <gasps> main, <gasps> baby, stampy, you idiot. Faster than a raccoon running across a... 12-lane turnpike. <laughs>